the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, give the stars a credit card, and boy, do they go to town on new nebulas, ring accretions, and shrouds. Hey, watch out, you profligate. Sugar Daddy Entropy's pockets aren't infinitely deep, so far as we know. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We talked to David Drake this time about his new novel set in the RCN universe. It's called To Clear Away the Shadows. This one's a little different from a Lyrian Monday Century book, but it has its own buddy dynamic between a couple of very different sorts of heroes. So that's coming up. And we continue with complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. Hey, the June e-arcs are out and ready to spark into your e-book reader. Now an e-arc is a virtual vessel designed to collect and rescue at least two of every base two numeral set. So after the righteous wrath of the main processing unit over the creation of Fortnite passes, programming can be reestablished within the virtuality. No, no, no. An e-arc is an electronic advanced reading copy. It is the galley of the book, the pre-proofreading, post-edited version of the book, which lets you read your favorite authors and series early, sometimes months early, usually, and read new books coming out generally, and as soon as they are ready for a review, you can read them too. We offer these ebooks exclusively at Bain.com, by the way. That's where you find them. Out now in New York is 1636 The China Venture by Eric Flint and Ivor P. Cooper. Venture to save an empire. The newly formed United States of Europe sends an embassy to the Chinese Empire for all important critical resources nobody has ever needed before, at least not before an entire town showed up from 300 years in the future. But China is famously suspicious of foreigners. Can the uptimers and their friends persuade the mandarins to establish trade and diplomatic relations with the young United States of Europe? Their greatest asset is their greatest curse, knowledge that China is due for decades of mass suffering and civil war. Changes must come, but changes bring their own kind of deadly consequences. Also out in New York at Bain.com is Stellaris, People of the Stars, edited by Les Johnson and Robert E. Hampson. Becoming the People of the Stars. Fundamental transformation. That is what it may take to reach our final destination. And we may not have a choice as dangers from without and pressure from within human civilization forces us to adapt to a new star-traveling heritage. We may find that Homo sapiens is on its way to becoming a new and unique species, Homo stellaris, the people of the stars. Original science fiction stories and accessible speculative pieces by top scientists that'll take you to that future. That's what we've got here. Stories from award-winning authors such as Kevin J. Anderson, William Ledbetter, Todd McCaffrey, and Sarah A. Hoyt. Plus essays on the science behind the fiction from Martin Rees, Astronomer Royale of the United Kingdom, Mark Shellhammer, Chief Scientist for the NASA's Human Research Program, and more. And finally now, out as a junior arc, is The Chronicles of Davids, edited by David F. Sharirod. 
Stories with Maximum Dave. The history of science fiction and fantasy is filled with stories by what we like to call Davids of Distinction. Now for the first time, an anthology by people named David for everyone. Even if your name is anything but David. Or if it is David, you can also read it. Read along as editor David Afsharirod guides you through the strange, wondrous imaginations of the great Davids of the field, past, present, and future. Fifteen tales by David Weber, David Drake, Gregory Benford, and David Brin, David B. Coe, D.J. Butler, who's Dave, Avram Davidson, David H. Keller, and many more. Many more Davids, that is. E-Arcs for the Chronicles of Davids, edited by David Afsharirod, Stellaris, People of the Stars, edited by Les Johnson and Robert E. Hampson, and 1636, The China Venture, by Eric Flint and Ivor P. Cooper, are now available exclusively at Bain.com. All formats are available. Any kind of ebook you need, get them early for your summer reading enjoyment. I want to welcome David Drake back to the podcast. Hello, Dave. Hi, Tony. David Drake was attending Duke University Law School when he was drafted. Served the next two years in the Army, spent 1970 as an enlisted interrogator with the 11th Armored Cavalry in Vietnam and Cambodia. Upon return, he completed his law degree at Duke and was for eight years assistant town attorney for Chapel Hill, North Carolina. But since 1981, he's been a full-time freelance writer. His books include the genre-defining and best-selling Hammer Slammer series and the nationally best-selling RCN series, including Sea Without a Shore, Death Sprite Day, Though Hell Should Bar the Way, a lot of other titles, and out now at booksellers everywhere. We have To Clear Away the Shadows, which is a Republic of Cinnabar Navy series novel. Um, it's a little bit different. Um, it, it, it's a lot different. Much like, we had Tree, uh last novel, who was a viewpoint character, who is not Larry or Mundy, Mundy. but um, and this one, they're not here. Um so we've we've gone off. Uh, yep. Although Larry and Monday don't show up, there's still sort of that same structure because this is, this is a buddy novel. However, can you tell us about the background, um, where we are in the history at the moment? The Cinnabar and the Alliance are are in some sort of peace, right? And uh, neither of them has any desire to break it, and uh, so it's going to hold. Are, the good guys are using the respite to send off some uh, scientific expeditions. Uh, basically, uh, building better ways through the universe, through the matrix. Uh, this is just in general for trade and that sort of thing. It will also be useful if war should break out again, uh, because the ship that we're following, the Far Traveler, is uh, working in areas that have been Alliance-based, and we're not barred to Cinnabar ships, but Cinnabar ships would be captured and sunk to found. So... Um, this is an honest-to-goodness scientific expedition, much like the Challenger expedition of 1870. 
What was, tell us about that. What is the background of the Challenger expedition? Uh, it was a joint venture by the Royal Navy and uh, the uh, Royal Society, uh, which were basically wealthy dilettantes. And uh, the ship was crewed by members of the Royal Navy and officers by members of the Royal Navy. Uh, but it pretty clearly has a... Uh, it, it certainly mattered who you were and who you knew to get on an expedition like that. The um, One of the ship's officers was in fact, the third son of um, British Earl, who was also a member of the Royal Society. So he, he was a, a member of high society, but son uh, had some scientific background, but was mostly there for... I mean, he was a naval officer. He had training and skills of a naval officer, and he stood watches. Uh, but he also had his guns and dog along, and went hunting uh, at stops in uh, the South Pacific. Uh, he, he was a tourist part of the time, uh, off-duty. I mean, he, he was not neglecting his naval duty. Um, but he, he was acting as a, uh, as a young gentleman, uh, and the travel was being paid for by the Royal Navy in his case, but, uh, he, he was seeing a lot of the world. Where did what did the Challenger expedition accomplish? What was their oh in, enormous thing? I mean they they were sounding, they were determining the depth um, of reefs, location of reefs, shoals, and the um, Challenger Deep, which is part of Marianas Trench, the lowest part, is actually named for the HMS Challenger, uh, this ship. Uh, they plumbed, plumbum being lead, mm -hmm. plumbed the uh, Challenger Deep in 1872 and found it was the lowest spot on Earth that had been found at that date. And in the century and a half since, it's still the lowest spot on Earth. I mean, it, this was real science. Uh, they brought back and cataloged specimens from all sorts of places, but their main duty was really to chart the oceans. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you describe this era in your introduction to, uh, to clear, to, to clear away the shadows. Um, as a heroic age of exploration, this this sort of um, what was it, mid mid in the nineteenth century? Uh, uh, mid to late, yes, yes. 
Uh, you, you had amazing stuff. Look, well, the Challenger was out there in the Pacific. You had Germany and Spain on the verge of going to war over some islands that you've probably never heard of. Uh, the Spanish were claiming to have, uh, have them as colonial subjects since uh, the 16th century, and Germany was looking for new colonies. The, the new Germany was its stamp on the world, literally. Uh, painting the, the map green, or I suppose it would have been green, Feldkraut. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this was a, an international incident. Um, in fact, when the Spanish-American War broke out, there was a concern at one point that uh, American warships were going to fire on German warships. Uh, you know, they, these were people who took things quite seriously. And the scientific expedition, which Challengers was, but she was a Royal Navy. She was a converted steam sloop, actually. Um, but she uh, she was sailing through the middle of this sort of thing. You had wars going on between various native tribes, uh, groups, sultans, if you will, on various islands. Um, you know, this was, and of course, Japan had just been opened to the West in 1854, I believe. Uh, the Challenger stopped there, and one of the things that Cochrane, the fellow uh, uh, whose account I was following uh, largely, uh, mentions is when you traveled through Japan uh, on the roads, you had a large number of unemployed samurai still wearing two swords and looking for trouble. Uh, it was easy, however, to hire a rickshaw uh, to go all over Japan with because there were a lot of out-of-work soldiers. Uh, the Mikado, the military dictator, had been overthrown in a revolution, and the revolution was actually uh, how shall we say uh, won by the old imperial family, which had been in eclipse for centuries. And uh, as a matter of fact, if you want to think of it as a sort of background that you would have in the Star Wars universe, Remember there, the, the rebels are actually the, the imperial 
really. They they are the old royal house. Yeah. Are rebelling against the republic running the empire now. Uh, well, uh, you you had similar sorts of difficulties in Japan at the time. Quite real. Um, and th- this is striking background to tell an adventure story in, or in this case, several adventure stories, because uh, I did this in um, episodic fashion. For a lot of so, um, all right. So, the in your world, you you do this a lot. You you use historical parallels, but you also don't you don't do analogies. Um, the The Republic is not uh, England, and the Alliance is not France, uh, right? Oh, oh no, there's or something like that. So what? What is the background of the RCN universe? There's been a lost technological age when humans had expanded, um, and then a fall. This you, you see this in a lot of Drake novels, don't you? Um, well, yes. Uh, remember, I started out and am a classicist, mm. and uh, you start looking at things in a historical perspective. You you kind of get that notion of well, things were really different 200 years ago. And, you know, we're, we're trying to get back to that level, whatever that level might be. But, yeah, I, the, the background here is the, there was a star-faring age of human exploration, you know, human expansion. And uh, it crashed. When um, basically the home world and uh, a number of the major colonies had serious outs, it crashed in a big way, much as the Roman Empire did. And uh, people then have been clawing back, and they have rebuilt a uh, very considerable civilization of what you know, various difficulties. Yeah. But so while they are exploring, they're exploring planets that have humans on them, but they are unknown still to, to at least our... Um... Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, presumably, uh, you know, human expansion uh, in the prehistoric period was, uh, you know, very complete. But they're now finding that there were at least five different, if you will, human humanoid, and possibly lending some of their DNA to modern man, uh, not just Cro-Magnons. You know, there were other human races mm-hmm. that came separately up. So, yeah. So, in the RCN universe also, long before uh, humans, there was also a predecessor species that that is so lost in time that it may not, that, that it's not clear it existed. Um, but 
we are beginning to see evidence that it that it did in the in to clear away the shadows. Who who were the archaic spacefarers, or what do we know about them at the beginning of the book, at least? Is that there were at the point that uh, modern human exploration has been taking place, uh, they have been finding occasionally things where species with human DNA that have diverged from humanity enormously uh, seem to have existed. There are artifacts uh, frequently made of clear silicon carbide, uh, moissanite, uh, still remain, is extremely refractory, uh, but no signs of uh, activity by any, we, we don't have any idea who the archaic spacefarers were, or even what species they were. They almost certainly were not human, but some humans, of course, think they were, uh, because it's a matter of religion at this point. Yeah, this this upstart uh, political uh, entity, the the Shinings. Um, yes, the Shining Empire. That's what they call themselves. <laughs> uh, I think they're related to the Archaics, but they're probably not, right? Uh, well, the Shining, the species running the Shining Empire is human. The Archaics probably were not human. Uh, we can't prove that, uh, but as a matter of faith, they believe they are related. And who knows? Uh, you know, you and I apparently have some Neanderthal genetics, and not only that, but some Hobbit genetics. That's true. That that crazy uh, short species that they found over in in Asia. So, I mean, this the the, the archaic spacefarers and the 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 slow accumulation of some knowledge about them and what it might it, it while this is a peripatetic uh, novel or a periodic in the way that you constructed it, still that's that's sort of the thing that's holding the thing together because this is what Harry um, and then Rick uh, are drawn into looking for, or and and it affects each of their uh, each of their adventures. So maybe we could talk about our main characters. Um, you want to start with Rick? Um, he's pure RCN, right? Sorry, I, I didn't catch you last. I said, uh, you want to start with Rick Grenville? He is, he's pure RCN. He, um, he eats and breathes and lives. Yes, yes he does. He, he is a naval officer and has all the knowledge and skills that you would expect of a smart, active naval officer who would just soon be on a pirate chaser. But he doesn't have family money. And uh, when he's offered a post as third officer on a, an exploration ship, he cheerfully takes it. Well, he mentions that um, the alternative is there's so many people because of peacetime. There's so many uh, uh, officers who are on half pay, mm-hmm. which was the bane of the royal of the the British Navy existence, right? 
Uh, yes. Well, if, if the Navy didn't have something to do with you, uh, you didn't lose your rank, uh, but they stopped paying you uh, full pay. You know, you were on your own. You, you can think of it as layoff pay. And if you've got a lot of family money, and many of them did, uh, or you were of a high enough rank that half pay was actually a, a decent amount of money, but in that case, you probably had some family money also. But if you're an ensign or a lieutenant, and we, we have, we do not have ensigns in this universe, which is basically based on the Royal Navy of 1740. You know, the structure. Um, the, uh, you know, you, in that case, if you're offered a slot, you take it. Better than starving. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it it's the closest thing to combat perhaps Rick can find. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's a real naval job. Uh, they are basically there to find new routes, uh, routes. And uh, it's real and uh, conceivably dangerous uh, activity of scouting new ways to get through the matrix, new ways of getting from point to point. And then there is uh, our other main character who doesn't have the money problems and who is of a different, of, of one of those higher statuses. Um, yeah, he's a noble. Tell us about Harry, if you will. Uh, Harry is a uh, bright youth. I mean, they're, they're both you know, bright young men. Uh, Harry is a studious youth, and he has been studying for a very good biology degree and has gotten it. And he's done this because he feels like it. Uh, he doesn't come from the side of the family that has really a lot of money and power, but the family has a lot of money in the terms of anybody else other than the member of the nobility. And uh, he just never really thinks about it. He, he's not after money. He's you know, not especially. He wants to use his biology degree. And he's perfectly willing to use family connections to get in a place that will allow him to use his biology degree. So this is a great position for him, uh, though he's completely lost in the RCN. Uh, because, you know, he doesn't have the background. So, you know, he's, you know, personable fellow. Um, well, he's, he's not interested in... He's... He's, he's, he lives in a society where you use your status and it's not something bad to do, um, right? He's, at the same time, he's not um, an asshole about or a jerk about it. Yeah, yeah. He, he's, you know, a young man who has advantages and who properly uses them. And um, he's got a good degree 
and he didn't buy that. Probably couldn't have bought it the place he got the degree. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he wants to go out and be a zoologist. So Rick and Harry have a, they're kind of opposites that um, at the same time uh, are capable of becoming friends um, because they have complementary skills, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Harry knows nothing about the Navy. Uh, Rick knows a great deal about the Navy. And as he says, he wouldn't be in any position to decide who sat next to whom at a dinner party. Uh, you know, different skills. Yeah. And yet, no, Rick is not a barbarian, and Harry is no effete um, lordling who can't who can't fight when called upon, or at least can't stand up for himself. He's a noble, and he's actually quite a good shot. And the fact he's using a bespoke shotgun to do it, uh, you know, if, if necessary, of course he'll fight. And he is called upon to do it. What about... Um, a third character who's who's really a compelling character in the book, even though she doesn't show up a whole lot. Um, she does at important moments. Who is Joss? Um, what's her story? Uh, actually, the best background on Joss <laughs> is in the story I wrote to write myself into this new universe, uh, which is the Savage, mm-hmm. and it it will appear in um, the book of David, sir. The David... What the, the heck are you... The Chronicles of Davids, and that is September book, yes. I I got what I thought was a ridiculous request uh, to do a story in a collection of books written by people named David or Davidson or something, and... Um, yeah, and it's the uh, David Mattingly is uh, did the cover, and David F. Shirey Rod is the editor. <laughs> uh, look, I thought it was a, a screwy notion, but basically, I was given carte blanche to do the best story I could, and I chose to do a story that would bounce me into this new universe. It, completely different, and so I did a story that was completely different, uh, and the central carry, it's, it's another exploration ship, it, it's a different one, but um, we get into that, uh, and Joss is a character who appears sort of by the by in that one, uh, getting hired as a local hunter. Except she isn't really local, uh, because she's been uh, a mercenary, if you will, for the Alliance during 10 years or so, and in uh, a very hard unit. If you want to think of them as comparable to the Derlevanger Brigade, uh, there's a lot of similarity there. Uh, these were people, for one reason or another, the uh, 
guarantor Pora, was perfectly willing to have killed. Uh, but they were given jobs to do that nobody else was willing to do uh, for one reason or another. Some of them were extremely hard jobs. Some of them were extremely nasty jobs. And they did them. And she's now been <laughs> demobilized, so to speak. Uh, she can't very well go back home, which is uh, basically uh, a savage village, which she came out of, and was glad to come out of. And uh, so she's hoping to get a job using her skills, keep a job using her skills with the RCN. And her skills involve um, hunting, trapping, uh, camouflage, this sort of thing. And she has a scientific she has enough background of civilization that you can trust her to take photographs of objects in situ before shooting, for example, which very few. Uh, <laughs> this is one of the things that was noticed uh, in real 19th century uh, expeditions. If you're going to gather Birds of Paradise from uh, New Guinea, which is one of the things a number of the groups did. Um, you're going to have to use native hunters. Because nobody else in 1850 was going to be climbing mountains in the heart of New Guinea. The uh, problem with that was the, the really skilled hunters would very frequently come back to you uh, when they return after several weeks of hunting with the skins of birds of paradise that they have tied to their belt and carried for those several months. And the, the specimens were not in good condition. Uh, the, the same thing is likely to happen in worlds that uh, the far traveler, or previously uh, the Goliath, uh, is visiting. So Joss has a real usefulness in uh, other worlds than her own, where she was hired. because she knows how to prepare specimens and is absolutely trustworthy. Um, she has many virtues. Uh, you just have to accept that she is what she is. Which is a killing machine when she needs to be, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> that was a job for 10 years. Yeah. And that's, uh, there's a line I think she speaks it. We weren't out of control. You know, her her unit wasn't out of control. They were doing what they were ordered to do, and maybe they shouldn't have been, but that that was above their pay grade. 
and she thinks ahead, for instance, um, if she's going to have to rescue Harry from a situation he's delivered himself into, she plants a few charges around um, to make sure she brings down the walls <laughs> of the compound and things like that as well. Oh. She may or may not use them. She's used to planning military situations. Well, she's she's really cool and um, someone that that both of the guys uh, come to trust. Um, so, what? We're on the far traveler. Um, they don't call it that. They've nicknamed it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. How does the uh, explain briefly once again how star travel works in in the RCN milieu? Uh, you universes. Uh, each separate bubble universe has different constants of you know velocity and mass distance. You move between them. You utilize the differences to multiply the speed, if you will, and inertia with which you entered that universe. So you are not violating the speed of light in our universe. You are moving out of the universe and following the constants which maintain in the all in the, the next universe that you moved into. It, it necessity. I mean, they, they use something like sails, like a sail-like thing is sticking into the other universe that moves the one in this one ahead. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because the one thing that appears to pass between all universes is uh, <laughs> now I'm blocking on the name. Uh, but there there appears to be one force that does move between through universes and by blocking that you can affect your transit in the universe you're in. It, it works very much like a 19th century sailing vessel. Yeah, and uh, so they travel, they're disconnected, there's no um, interstellar radio or anything, so they're very much at the same uh, sort of situation as, as ships, that is self-contained exploring. So let's talk about the, some of the planets they visit and who they meet. That what about Medlam, uh, where we where we end up uh, near the beginning, and and they and both Harry and Rick meet a woman named Rachel Pine while while there. Um, Pretty girl. Yeah. And um, you know they're young men. She's a pretty girl. She's working in a junior capacity. In a a local branch of public cinnabar, 
uh, because <clears throat> the Republican Cinnabar has been asked to mediate in a dispute of over, uh, you know, prominence, if you will, uh, between the Alliance and the Shining Empire, who are the local up-and-comers. And if you think about Japan in the northern Pacific, in um, the 19th century, uh, you, you can get a, a feeling for it. Uh, Japan was coming up from basically nothing. It had regained its imperial Military dictators, the Mikados, had been kicked out. Um, but uh, the, you know, they they wanted to prove they were really as good as anybody else. It was important to them, and um, they were making waves. Well, a lot of people were making waves in the later 19th century. Um, and um, in this conflict between an old empire and new up-and-comers, uh, both sides were willing to accept as a neutral um, the Republic of Cinnabar, which Therefore, has a mission uh, on world meddling. And as I say, uh, Rachel Pond is a junior staffer and a pretty girl. Yeah. But she's not an easy girl. <laughs> she makes that clear. <laughs> uh, so, yes, that's, you know, this, this is not a round heeled tramp. There are plenty of them, but she's not one of them. And um, it's it, makes a, a complicated situation because these are both they're young men but they're decent young men both of them, honorable so uh, but they <laughs> especially Rick is is um, he's a naval officer yeah. this is a girl in every port isn't really a, it isn't completely a joke when somebody's going to be away from home for two years and is meeting a lot of interesting people uh, at really long distances from home, and some of them are attractive young women, um, things happen and, and will continue to happen as long as human beings are around. Yeah. Well, I certainly understand right rick so needs um so medlam is also a uh is is a volcanic world um yep which plays into the story oh uh, yes well that's, that's based on soufriere on martinique um you know that that's a very real situation and if you look up uh, martinique and the uh, well, we're going to give away some of the plot with this. 
Well, the I mean, it's there. It's a problem because civilization is near. Uh, all these people are living near a place that could blow up. Well, yeah. So, um. Well, before we are there, uh, do they run across any archaic uh, artifacts here? I, I'm trying to remember. Is it Deserta that has? Uh, it, that that's actually earlier on Funwai. Ah. Like, and uh, they they find what are believed to be archaic artifacts on several planets. Uh, I don't believe Medlum is one of them, however. It could be. Maybe they just haven't looked hard enough. Well, they 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 do look next on uh, on this planet Elkin, where um, they find a castaway. <laughs> yes, and a wayman. <laughs> yeah, that's real too. His name is Turney. What happened to him? How? Why is he there? They, they, they. He's very grateful when they show up. He can hardly believe it. He said decades not to believe it. Uh, th this was a real situation. Uh, remember, communications were very slow in the 19th century and before uh, with sailing ships. And you regularly had uh, members of the crew say, a wheeler, uh, or the like, uh, put ashore on a distant island, which was completely uninhabited, except for some, you know, the, the seals would come once a year, in some numbers, and the, the away men would gather seal skins. Yeah, and the like. It, this was true in a number of places where you had quantity, stuff that was valuable in quantity but was only irregularly available. And you just put somebody there and came back in six months or a year or two years. And that, if the ship didn't sink or something, because these guys could be there for the rest of a very long life. Uh, things went wrong, and in the case of Turney, uh, things went wrong when the ship came to pick up his group, scattered group, uh, they missed him. So he's been on this uninhabited, unvisited island for an extremely long time, and he's crazy as a head bug, which you would get that way. Yeah. Well, he's still doing his job, as he conceives it. Nothing else to cling to. Yeah. The one thing he knows about, um, and it's kind of a, it turns out to be a thing that both confirms and uh, and and gives pause to Harry about the archaics, um, is this uh, moissanite box. Um, I, it's not really a, I don't think we, it's a big spoiler to talk a little bit about it because it's a really, it's an interesting part of the story that, um, because it, 
it's the thing that lets young men dream dreams and see visions. <laughs> uh, yes, and it appears, you know, it's a dream. It appears that the archaics may have been doing human genetic experiments. I, I'd say human. Being been doing experiments on forms of life on the various worlds they find. So this sentient uh, thinking beings they were messing with. Yes, in, including, as I say, as has been suggested in earlier books in the series, of human beings in some cases. Mm -hmm. These were apparently not people. They were not nice people either. Yeah. When you talk about cannibals, a uh, a lion that eats a man is not a cannibal. He's a cannibal if he eats another lion, which mostly they do not. Uh, so. Maybe I'm being too hard on the archaics. Why should they care about other forms of life? Lesser forms of life, by definition, in this, the archaics had star travel, and the people they were, the, <laughs> the creatures they were experimenting on did not have star travel, and therefore were lesser forms of life. Uh, having said that, I, I wound up finishing this book with the feeling that they, they are not folks I would have wanted to know better. <laughs> Just as well, they have all vanished from the universe, we think. Yeah. Well, Harry is not too happy uh, with them on a moral plane. <laughs> well, uh, so, lest we think there's no action, uh, there's plenty of action in the book, especially on Mindoro. Uh, what happens to Rick? Well, uh, you have a case where the government has been overthrown. They want to use him to coerce uh, the release of some prisoners. Right. Uh, you, you have a couple of local parties feuding, uh, one of them aided by... Uh, foreign power. Uh, this, if you want to think of it as similar to that uh, situation taking place in um, Ecuador after the War of the Pacific, where you had um, Chilean forces in charge, but all of the different, you know, half a dozen different rebel movements against them, which, if they had all gotten together, uh, might have been able to uh, throw out the Chileans. But on the other hand, if they'd been able to get together, the Chileans wouldn't have defeated them. So you, you have that sort of a situation where uh, various parties within the local community are at odds, and one or more of them is hoping to use the foreigners, uh, in this case, Cinnabar forces, as 
a negotiating ploy against the others. And Rick winds up being uh, grabbed as a ploy. This is a... Uh... This way, he was grabbed. It wasn't a honey trap because the girl he was with here um, was not um, in on it. <laughs> they just been local talent, and he was, you know, a sailor ashore, yeah. and um, he was with her and a bunch of guys come in and grab him. Yeah. Grab her because they're not interested in her. She's just a local whore. So the um, this is a, uh, a a spot where Harry really proves his mettle as well. Um, the captain is what Captain Bolton um, protests loudly, but is seeming is not incredibly effectual in this this situation. Of one of his men has been kidnapped on a strange world. Well, he doesn't have really much to operate with. He can protest to the government, but the people who appeared to have grabbed this RCN lieutenant are opposed to the government to begin with. And the reason that the government isn't able to crack down on them is just as valid as why they didn't crack down on them before. Uh, it, would, it would unite the various hostile groups against government if the government backed down. Mm-hmm. And um, so they're, they're willing to, to protest and all that, and they certainly are not happy this happened, but they're not about to give in to their political rivals uh, because a scientific vessel is complaining that something bad happened to one of their men. It did. And if the government could snap its fingers and hold the change for the better, great. But it can't, and uh, no, they're they're not going to get Rick released. They can't. But Harry is is not willing to take this lying down. He they've become friends now. They've they've helped each other. There, there's a feeling in this of noblesse oblige. Uh, you know, you don't do that to one of my people. And he doesn't really care about political problems local government has. That's not his business. His business is to be a biologist. And in this case, he is still... Or friendly. Uh, fortunately, he's also uh, he's got Joss to back him up, even if he doesn't know it, realizes it. She she has useful skills. <laughs> so um, we have a rescue or attempted rescue. Um, and same uh, and and Harry gets into a, a tricky situation with some some piratical smugglers on the on their next destination, Zimlin's world, I think. Um, and this is where we really see what Joss is. Yep. And bloody good to have her with you. 
Yeah. yeah. And finally, uh, Rick gets to return the favor um, by finding Harry. What, what has Harry got himself into on, on Zimlin's world? What's going on with this? Um... Well, you, you have a you have a column, if you will, of basically unsettled worlds, which a small portion has a valuable commodity. A company chartered to produce the valuable commodity. And this is a monopoly of Aaron Corpora himself. Uh, it's it is not so much a an alliance world, it is the emperor himself who owns this particular one. And uh, so there's a local constabulary. And uh, there are people, interloping traders, if you will, and you can think of a uh, which had armed ships hired mercenaries to protect, not seals, but to protect their monopoly on cropping seals. And uh, we're perfectly willing to use cannon on ships that uh, were trying to steal seals, steal skins, and uh, is able and carry Purely through happenstance, uh, walks into a smuggling operation in process. And given the owner's head of the alliance himself, uh, people know perfectly well what's going to happen to them if they're caught. And therefore, Folks who have been bribed and uh, to avoid the monopoly are, they're up against the wall. They're, their lives are on the line. They will certainly kill a stranger who interferes with it, even if the stranger is just sort of passing through, which Rick wanted to or Harry wanted to be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, David, it sounds like to me that you read a bunch of cool books about the heroic age of exploration and said, how could I set this in the RCN universe and write a book about it? That's exactly <laughs> what I did. Okay. And, and I didn't make any, well, I didn't make very much of it up. Uh, the results of Soufrière, of uh, the volcano on Martinique going off. Uh, there is a memoir by a U.S. naval lieutenant which I read in a 1926 Weird Tales, oddly enough. Uh, but he happened to be there shortly thereafter. And his job was among the people who had been killed were the American Consul. His job was to lead a party of sailors 
to recover the consul's body through this volcano-devastated community of 3,000 who have been killed. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, there is a lot of first-hand material available on this stuff, and you don't have to make things up. It's, it's really a wonderful, exciting I tried to put that purpose. Yeah, and um, and the relationship between Rick and Harry is really it's fun. It's different, very different from Larry Mundy, but at the same time, um, it's uh, it, it's got its own dynamic that's that's really cool. Right. Uh, so, what are you working on at the moment? Well, I'm uh, I'm relaxing from having issue known. Um, crashed this latest book out, um, and I am gathering notes toward another book in the time of heroes that would be a third pal book. Cool, cool. Moving along, yeah. Tony's listening to this, I'm not saying that I'm ready for it to be. <laughs> we won't schedule it for August, okay. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that, <laughs> I'd get it in if I had to, but I would be really, really pleased. Yeah. Well, um, the book that's out right now is To Clear Away the Shadows by David Drake. It's an RCN novel. Um, it's got all the cool stuff from the RCN universe, and it's got some uh, new stuff, new characters as well. It's available at booksellers everywhere. Uh, and it's got another beautiful uh, Stephen Hickman cover. Uh, it has fine Steve Hickman cover, which uh, is quite different for the series, as the series itself is different. I like it very much. Dave, thanks so much for talking with us about the Clear Away the Shadows. Thank you, Tony. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 30 Four Years Ago The demons must be emerging from the sea again, the overseer said as he entered the storehouse. 
Alarmed, Keita the butcher sprinted to the entrance, meat cleaver in hand. He looked toward the distant shore but saw no monsters. The ocean was its normal blue, not blood red like the last time. Are they coming? He gasped. It had been nearly twenty years since their last incursion into the lands of House Utara. How do you know? Have you seen them? Yet the overseer wasn't panicking like most men would if they'd seen such horrors. Calm yourself, butcher. The large man scowled as he moved one hand to the whip at his side. Like all overseers, he was a hard man, but unlike most appointed to his station, not a totally unkind one. Such disrespectful questions could earn a beating. They were both castless, but even among the lowest of the low, there was order. Keita bowed his head. Forgive me. I was little the last time the demons came. They slaughtered everyone. Realizing that he was still clutching the sharpened cleaver, Keita quickly dropped it onto a nearby table. The law said his kind were not allowed weapons, only tools necessary to perform their work. Fear made me speak out of turn. The overseer let go of the whip. I've seen the ocean beasts myself. Only a fool would be unafraid. There have been no raids, yet. Remarkably, he even took the time to answer the young man's questions. This morning, I was told that one of the protectors of the law is on his way here. Keita's mouth was suddenly very dry. A protector is coming all the way from the capital. The overseer scratched his head. That's a long journey, and this house isn't so big to warrant such a visit. I bet demons have been seen along these shores again. What else could attract a protector's attention? An uprising. But Keita didn't speak. The protectors kept order between houses and the castes in their place. He could only pray to the forgotten that it was demons from the haunted sea, and not another purge that brought such a perfect killer into their midst. What a horrible thing to wish for. Regardless of the reason for the visit, the master wants his holdings in top shape for a visitor of such high status. The overseer glanced around Keita's storehouse. Cured meats hung from chains. Barrels of salted fish were neatly stacked in the corners. The storehouse was already extremely neat and organized, as Keita had learned a long time ago that the best way to avoid trouble was never to cause any. I can't imagine a warrior who can kill demons with his bare hands, inventorying meat, but clean everything just in case. As you command, it will be done. And one more thing. The overseer leaned in conspiratorially. I heard the master giving instructions. If it is demons, and were raided, the warriors are to protect the master's household first, then the town, then the livestock next, and once the cows and pigs are safe, only then see to the castless quarter. The overseer's disgust was obvious. It's nice to know that years of loyal service has made it so that our master values the chickens more than he values the lives of my children. Was this a test of his obedience? That is how they are valued according to the law. I don't think demons honor the law. The overseer's eyes darted toward the discarded meat cleaver. I'd keep that handy if I were you. That is just a tool, 
necessary to fulfill the responsibilities assigned to me, Keita said automatically. I would never... Of course. The overseer nodded, pretending he had not noticed the way Keita had held it earlier. It's just a tool. I forget myself. That's not a wise thing to do with a protector coming. I will spread the word. Get back to work. He waited until the master's man had left the storehouse before returning the meat cleaver to its place on his apron. The overseer was correct. The master and the law were correct. A sharpened piece of steel was just a tool. The spears, knives, and clubs Keita had been secretly stockpiling beneath the barrels of fish were also just tools. His mind was the weapon. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a newly found Latin history of the fall of the Republic, acquired from an amphora during the basement digging of a new bordello in Rome, and written in the Latin version of Limericks, which attributes the rise of Augustus to Roman teens suddenly eating a bunch of those strange cakes known only as Titus Patiuses. Plus, thanks, praise, and gratitude to David Drake, author of To Clear Away the Shadows. Please join us next time here at the Hammering Heart of Science Fiction and Fantasy, and keep reaching for those stars. <laughs>